1: Hello, I am Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Michael Gibbs Hill, who recently translated the introduction and synopsis to a four-volume work by Wang Hui that's published under the title of China from Empire to Nation State. This just came out in 2014 with Harvard University Press. Now, we decided to have this interview be more of a kind of conversation than I usually try to do in an interview, so... Yeah, listeners will know that I at least do my very best, if not, you know, being entirely successful at that attempt all the time to hang back and not talk so much. Um, but in this case, we decided to at least try to have more of a conversation. So you'll hear me blathering on a little bit more than usual. So you can just kind of zone out for those bits, but really listen closely to Michael. Um, what he does in the course of this interview is he talks about both aspects of, or at least two aspects of the kind of work um, that went into and that I think comes out of this book. Um, One of those aspects is, The kind of contribution that this book makes, um, actually and potentially, to a larger conversation about the historiography of China, about how to understand uh, modern China, Qing China, and also China in terms of a larger global history, and the ways that a larger global historiography have helped frame and set the terms with which we understand the history of China. So part of our conversation, about half of our conversation has to do with those kinds of issues, sort of situating this within a larger history of China. And half the conversation has to do with Michael's practices and processes um, and theories of translation. So how he approached this particular project and how he approaches projects in general as a translator. And so um, this is an interview for you and a book for you if you're interested in either one of those things, either modern Chinese history and Qing Chinese history, with especially within a larger global frame, but also the practices and craft and art of translation. So with that, I will let you get right to it. It was such a pleasure um, to talk with Michael about it, and I'll absolutely be assigning the heck out of this book when I teach graduate seminars, um, when I teach upper level undergraduate seminars, and also I'll be returning to it frequently just for um, my own reading. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Michael Gibbs Hill about his new translation of Wang Hui's China from Empire to Nation State. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome back, actually, to New Books in East Asian Studies, Michael. And thanks very, very much for making time to speak with me today. I'm really, really looking forward to this.
0: Hi, Carla. Thanks so much for having me back on
1: course. So, Michael, the book that we're talking about is a translation of the introduction and overview yeah. to actually a four-volume work by Wang Hui called The Rise of Modern Chinese Thought, or that at least that's how it's translated in English. Now, there's right. been, um, as you set this up, an extensive discussion of its contents in English, but not a translation of the work itself. So, can you maybe start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to this project. How did you become involved in and committed to translating this work?
0: Well, I think um, really part of it comes from the fact that um, my my PhD dissertation and the first book I wrote is on the history of translation in uh, late 19th century and early 20th century China, and then kind of opening back up to the larger question of the history of translation between... Um, China and other um, other countries or China and other nations or China and the West and I've always, uh, that project actually came out of in some ways my own experience as a translator um, between the time that I worked on my master's degree and the PhD um, I I Actually worked as a technical translator, doing doing work that that um, I mean in academia when we talk about translation, we're we're usually thinking of literary translation often or of something along those lines. And this was about as far as you could get from from that kind of work. This was you know translating things like patent documents and contracts. And uh, I I developed a specialty in pharmaceuticals of all things. Like Ooh. I knew lear- learned a lot about vitamins <laughs> and uh, things like that. So so it was something that. I did uh, really as a way to to, well first it was kind of a primary job and then when I got back into doing the PhD program. Um I continued to do that because it was a good way to be able to survive as a graduate student in New York City as a kind of supplement to to uh, to 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 the stipend that we received. So, you know, you could actually buy a few fresh vegetables and go out to dinner every <laughs> once in a while if you did this kind of transition,
1: vitamins.
0: Yeah, vitamins, yeah. You could you could afford vitamins or or <laughs> foods that are rich in vitamins. Right. So um and, and that actually really influenced the the book that I did on Lean Shu because when I kind of got into writing the dissertation, I, I I kept sort of thinking about translation as a kind of technology, uh, as something that is um, requires a certain kind of training and is is a very particular sort of historically formed mode of knowledge production, and um, so. In that whole process, I began to read some of Wang Hui's "Xin Zhongguo this this Rise of Modern Chinese Thought, which is um, a, a huge book, and I'm not sure it will ever be rendered into English in full. But um, by by that time, you know, it already had a a, a, a reputation that preceded it, and I found his discussions of um, intellectuals like Yen Fu, the famous translator Yen Fu, who translated uh, um, works like by by writers such as Huxley and and Spencer, um, and and was a key figure in late 19th, early 20th century intellectual history. I I found his work very useful as I worked on the dissertation and then sort of was reading more uh, of his work, and then um, it just sort of, this project sort of Came up, and um, so I decided I wanted to I wanted to give it a try. It really was really useful to me because I started this translation pretty much when the book on Lin Shu was done, and. The the scope of this book is so vast that for me, kind of intellectually, it was really uh, it was really helpful because you know you, you spend all this time in graduate school. Um, I went to two schools for the master's degree and the PhD, and you you end up working on this project that becomes the dissertation and then the monograph. I mean, it extends on seemingly endlessly, right? I I don't don't know. You were pretty quick, I think, at getting your dissertation (laughs) turned into a book, but I mean, it's not uncommon for people to go 10 years working on one project sort of off and on. And... Um, having worked on that project, and then now turning to this other book that you know engages with all of the bigs of um, Western historiography—you know, Marx and Hegel and Adam Smith and Max Weber and Lenin and you know uh, Japanese scholarship from the Kyoto School and. Um, all kinds
1: Hitler of, and Mus- <laughs> Yeah, there's mention well, of Hitler and Mussolini. No, Mus- we'll we'll talk about too. that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of something that the project allowed me to step back and kind of think about some of the bigger issues that you, you just don't have time to consider uh, when you're doing your own scholarship, especially finishing up that dissertation project, right, that, that never wants to go away. And, um, and in your teaching as well. So it just seemed to come along at the right time. Um, and it was, I, I've tried, to, I've done some other translation projects. Like right after I finished the dissertation, I worked on um, a, a piece from 1903, 1904. It's, uh, it's called The Women's Bell, New Jie Zhong, that uh, is the first big, big tracked on women's rights in modern China. And that was... I was kind of strategic in selecting that, too, because it was something that was from my period that I was specializing in, but it wasn't specific to my dissertation project. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount from working on that, too, because it it taught me so much about the range of reference and the styles of argument that you saw in um, intellectual writings and political writings from from the late 19th century. So I I try to... Choose projects that 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 match um, with my interest in one way or another and that allow me to to really uh, to learn from them and in some ways it kind of keeps you going right mm-hmm. and makes you think about other things in your own work and and, and sets off little light bulbs.
1: So um, we'll talk in turn about both the nature of this book itself, right, and the kinds of contributions that I think, um, and that I'm interested in hearing what you think um, about how it might shape or help reshape or help contribute to at least the way we think about Chinese historiography and also European historiography um, in a North American context and also a broader Anglophone context. And we'll also talk about, um, I hope, your processes as a translator and sort of your work um, more broadly as a translator. But before we get to that, I'm actually um, interested in knowing a little bit about the genesis of this book a little bit more, um, just a tiny little bit more about the genesis of this book as an object, especially um, perhaps um, for the sake of others who might be listening and might be conceiving translation projects of their own, right, who might um, really like or really feel um like uh, there's a particular work that's not in English that's important um, that needs right. to be rendered and that they want to commit to, um, and who might be interested in in how this actually comes to be as a publication so when you undertook this translation did you how did you decide that Translating the introduction and synopsis of this book made sense as a book-length object in English, and did you already have a publisher's commitment when you started, or was this something that you started just um, purely out of interest?
0: Harvard had Harvard University Press had been interested in working on this project for a while, and they—they, um, they, it's my understanding that they also had been talking with Wang Hui about having him produce a sort of condensed version mm-hmm. of the of the longer four volume work for translation. And I, I I don't know where they are with that, but this this project was something that um, to that extent to to the extent of, of translating just the, this introduction or the Dalun had. Um, was pretty much already conceived of by the press. And there have been a couple of other translation uh, translations of this introduction um, into other languages. So there, there's a translation into Japanese mm-hmm. that translates to this introduction in a couple of chapters, and I believe the the introduction itself was also translated into Italian as well. Um, and on its own, and, and I kind of make in the introduction a recommendation for how a person might use this book if you were teaching. Um, One way toward the end of the introduction says, "Well, you should look at my long conclusion as well. That and the introduction go together. And if we were to translate all of them together, we'd end up with like a 400-page book, which wow. which is not possible at this time. Um, so, so I think that um, there are perhaps other individual English publications, particularly his discussions of scientism mm-hmm. um, and and the politics of of." Scientific thought um that that have already been translated in english and so i think that taken together they they form a really good introduction to many of the issues that um that he has raised in terms of bringing a project to a publisher i think that uh, it it really hmm, i think that that's a good question um
1: well, it sounds Go like in, no it sounds like in your um, experience at least this was something that the publisher was interested in doing anyway right yes. So this is a kind of happy marriage of yes. um, uh, both of your interests overlapping at the same time. So maybe right. um, we can at least just leave it at. That's possible. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's definitely possible. That's possible. Um, and I'm, I'm actually really glad that it happened because I can, we'll talk about this over the course of the conversation a little bit more, I'm sure. But this is a book that already I'm now planning on teaching with um, when I teach graduate students and um, I think also upper level undergraduates. So we can maybe talk about some of those details a little bit later. Sure, sure. Okay. So, in order to kind of get us situated for listeners who don't know anything about the book, let's um, not necessarily summarize it as if you were Wang Hui, right? Because you're not Wang Hui and you're not pretending to be. But let's at least try to situate um, this book within the larger framework of Chinese studies in the U.S. And maybe let's start broadly. Um, So for you... What are some of the most important ways or maybe some of the striking ways for you that this book engages some larger themes that are also under um, discussion, being uh, sort of struggled with by historians of China in the U.S.? Um, And so we can sort of identify some important points of possible engagement and open those up a little bit.
0: Sure. He he starts off in the at the beginning of the book by asking you know these really enormous questions. You know what is China? What is modern? What is modern China? And those questions maybe I think are too big um, to to grapple with right away. But I think that the the way that uh, that Wang Hui does this is to ask, particularly in this introduction, um, how we understand the relationship between the Qing dynasty and all of the other states that followed that. So the the Republic of China. 1911, 1912, and then um, the People's Republic of China. And I, I, kept thinking, you know, this book came out right as all of this, uh, as the protests in Hong Kong are going on. Um, is when I first got the uh, the first copy of this book in the mail, and and we see, you know, right there, um, these these questions of the real historical relationships between the Qing Dynasty and the, and the sort of what we think is the the territory of the People's Republic and of the Qing. Um, and of their relationship to the histories of colonialism and imperialism are all still extremely relevant and um, still play a very important part in politics today. And that's that's what I think is his approach to this question of how we understand the Qing dynasty um, is, for me, I think most useful. Um, the book of course, the whole four-volume uh, Rise of Modern Chinese Thought goes all the way back to the Song Dynasty, uh, the Tang and Song period, and and conceptions of, of the state um, in those times, as well as the kinds of... Uh the discussions between the merits of having a kind of centralized state um, or having a less centralized state, which which center around these discussions of so-called in, in fiefment or fangjian, which is often mistranslated as um, uh, as feudalism, and then um, the sort of the the, the the what is it called the well the well system, the jingtian system as well, um, and how those debates. Um, played out historically. And then I think, you know, he's, he's really kind of probing some of those questions and their relevance um, for the present day.
1: Mm-hmm. No, So one of the things, um, speaking of going back to the Tang and Song, one of the ways that this book is, I think, important in um, informing a global history uh, conversation and a, a way of understanding China's place within a global history conversation as well is is precisely that um, in at least one of the ways in which this is possible, or in which I think this happens, he does go back to the Tang and Song, the Tang-Song transition as a way of situating, periodizing, and identifying a possible early modernity in Chinese history. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's explicitly engaging scholars in um, what's known as the Kyoto School. Right. So in doing that, I think this Much more so than a lot of other works that try to understand the problem of China within a larger conversation about early modernity, which tends to relate China explicitly to empire in the context of European states. Right, um, early modern Europe, this is really trying to bring in a kind of historiographical frame that's not explicitly based in European historiography, but instead that reaches back to another way of thinking about um, possible, possible early modernities and the, the consequences of thinking about early modernity as stretching back to the tongue on.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and his, his his use, I think, of the Kyoto School is is quite interesting because he's using it to kind of offer an alternative temporality without necessarily endorsing the politics of the Kyoto School, right, which are associated with um, uh, Japanese politics from the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties, even, and and so he, he his his appropriation of the Kyoto School, I think, is really fascinating as a way of. Uh, offering an alternative to or talking back to um, a historiography of China that basically argues that, you know, uh, China was essentially non-modern until uh, the middle of the 19th century and 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 so, so that I think is 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 particularly useful as well.
1: Right, and one of the reasons why this is this issue of you know when did China become modern? Was China modern um, before we even get to you know what are we talking about when we talk about China? Does that make sense as a transhistorical right. concept? concept, right. and we'll get to that. Um, but one of the reasons why this is such a crucial um, problem for him, certainly in the beginning part of the book, is that he's leading us through. The problem of whether to think of and whether um, previous historians in different times and spaces have thought of China as an empire versus a nation state. Right. Um, Since this is such a crucial element of the book on this idea of China as an empire versus a nation state. Can you maybe talk a little bit about why, at least as a reader and translator of the book, um, so what's the big deal basically? Why does it matter um, whether we consider China as an empire or a nation state? And um, why is that important if you think it is to informing, you know, sort of a larger historiography of China?
0: Sure. I'll, I'll summarize the argument a little bit and then talk about uh, one area in kind of contemporary scholarship where I think it might Perfect. be particu- particularly relevant. Um, so he, he gives us a kind of – and he relies very much on Perry Anderson's um, uh, kind of genealogy of, of, of the notion of empire in in um, in Western thought. And, and according to this argument, um, the empire um, is – seen in opposition to the rise of um, European nation states, right? And so if we think of the the nation state requires a kind of unitary um, seat of sovereignty um, and requires a kind of a a homogenous Culture and populace, right? So, if we think of, I think that one of the best examples is if we think of the word French, right? So, French denotes uh, a language, um, a, a territory, the French state, and and to some extent a kind of culture, and then even in 19th century thought a kind of a, a people or or even a kind of separate group of people who can all be um, indicated by a single word and. What Wang Wei argues is that, and he's again drawing from from Perry Anderson, is that um, other non-Western state entities um, come to be considered empires. So, for example, like the Ottoman Empire uh, or the the Mughal Empire or even to some extent the Russian Empire and the Chinese Empire, and they are seen as non-modern because they have – and particularly thinking about the Qing, they have multiple centers of power, um, multiple languages, um, multiple different ethnic groups, different religions. Uh, They don't cohere into a kind of homogenous nation state that in Western historiography is essentially, uh, the argument goes, required to be um, capable of of moving forward into the modern world. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Again, this is this raises you know all the kind of questions of China's um, uh, territories outside of what we think of as China proper. Um, and at the same time, I think you know I, I'm, the question that came up in my mind is: in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be teaching something on Sinophone studies. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be teaching you know Chirshumei's uh, reader um, and other works that address this issue of of what is how do we think of um, Ch- literature that is written in Chinese, maybe not within China proper, um, maybe written in North America, um, maybe written by non-Han Chinese writers. How do we think about them? And one of the models of Sinophone studies is very much to put um, many of these questions into into a model of colonial and postcolonial studies. And um, uh, Schur's book um, argues that that China is basically an empire right it it empire it's it it it's a, it, 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 a, a land based empire that inherits the the um i think it's what is referred to in the book as the spoils of the Qing empire or something like this and that's a very different vision of empire than what wang Hui is talking about um and I think what he tries to do is question even what the nature of imperialism is, Mm -hmm. um, what its relationship to historical capitalism is, and how China does or does not fit into that. In some ways, there's a lot more questions that are raised than he can possibly answer, but um, those are all certainly, I think, very important for understanding um, not only contemporary China, but for for how we want to approach scholarship on the last 250 years of, of history in China.
1: He even, I mean, at at one point in the book, takes on the idea that it makes sense to think about, at least in my reading right now. And that's all I can really um, respond in light of is my own reading of this. But he takes on the idea that we can think about a coherent China by tracing something consistent in the writing system. I mean, he really kind of brings right. up the importance of um, the phonology and oral speech as being something that's very much being negotiated and very much a part of how we need to think about the history of China as a kind of multipolar in a way, right. or, uh, larger entity. And so even in just turning here to Ask us to look at and think about the importance of non-written language, right? A right. language that's spoken. Right. It, it really differs from a lot of um, approaches to China in the context of discussions of empire and nation-state and world history that are, that are coming out um, these days.
0: And I wonder—I mean, since since you also work on Qing history and are particularly interested in the many different languages of the late imperial period, what is what is your uh, what do you what do you think of some of his discussions of of <laughs> new Qing history?
1: Right. Um, so you know, I'll just say just a couple of things about this. I thought, first of all, I th- thought this was really fascinating because one of the things that I think he does really well that those of us who work in or around or on New Qing history aren't always um, very attentive to is he's taking on the terms of the conversation, like terms like imperial, terms like colonial, terms like empire, and really giving us a genealogy, or at least one possible genealogy of those concepts and that terminology as they manifest in Western language historiography and in Chinese language historiography, and to some extent in Japanese language historiography, in a way that makes part of the history of the idea of Qing Empire you know, or, or it makes part of the history of Qing Empire relate to and, and really depend on the historiography of the terms of the conversation. Right. right. So I think in that um, sense it's really, really interesting. I mean, I think... Um, it's really useful here in that he is also disentangling notions of ethnicity from notions of China and notions of mm-hmm. empire, which is really useful. Right. I mean, he's explicitly problematizing at several points here, at least as, as I read it, the conception of the Han um, and Han identity. Absolutely. Um, now, you know, one of the things that we could talk about, though, is his sort of he does have this discussion in here of the Qing as a Chinese dynasty. Right, and of ways that we might think about something like a kind of Confucian conceptual framework or you know, something like that as being a kind of almost a toolbox that. Um, rulers of what has become known as the sort of overarching China could use and pick up and deploy to ch- sort of make Chinese their, their dynasty and sort of I- insert themselves into this larger um, conceptual scheme. Uh, and that's really, really different, right, from how we think about um, the Qing uh, in, uh, in terms of new Qing studies, I mean, my, for, at least for me, for me, you know, there was no real attention, um, that he's giving in this book to, you know, to the kind of multiplicity and the, the real difference, the linguistic difference, (laughs) the cultural difference, the conceptual difference that we try to highlight, um, in recent new Ching historiography. So that's, um, really, really different right Uh, for what we do and absolutely but it's i i'm on the fence as to whether i am thinking about this and interpreting it as and reading it as an absence or Mm. whether this is just a you know a light shined in a different direction and okay um so i don't what are your thoughts
0: i i i really read this i mean in i i think that um in the larger work,
1: mm-hmm.
0: he's really trying to go back to. Um, he's particularly interested in some of these early attempts to theorize um, the Chinese Republic, mm-hmm. uh, for example, Zhang Taian and 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 these uh, attempts to, and and actually in the early um, Communist Party documents are attempts to. Um, Deal with the the diversity that's inherited from the Qing dynasty, um, and. To you know, I think that certainly retain some of the political power that the Qing held, but then also to allow for a certain degree of autonomy for different groups, um, non-Han groups. I think that that's what he, some of the things he's trying to think of, and I think that those those reflect directly on contemporary China. Um, that that it is at least an attempt to think maybe some, maybe a little bit obliquely about uh, some of these very same issues that 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 are that are faced by um, contemporary China. And then there's another piece which I think um, is really challenging that came out in another book. It's The uh, the Politics of Imagining Asia, which is his essay on Tibet, mm-hmm. uh, where he really takes on um, the issue of unrest in Tibet. And in ways I think that would make many uh, Anglophone readers very uncomfortable, um, you know, is his, his really uh, not – Rejects uh, a lot of kind of Tibetan identity politics, uh, and argues that the problems that are arising there come from the contradictions of modernization and development. And so there there is at least a, a kind of indirect defense of, of the of the central state and uh, and and its management of the situation in ways that it might you know improve it. So I think that some of these meditations are, are ways of trying to think through um, how we understand the Qing actually really do relate to contemporary politics in, in, in important ways, and at least in very suggestive ways.
1: Absolutely, and, and I think it's, um, at least, again, as in my experience as a um, reader and a reader of this for the first time, the book can also be read as presupposing a kind of stable through line for China this um, sort a of conceptual China even as it tries to historicize it and problematize it I mean right. there still is something stable that you can follow through and the question at some points in the book seems to be about w- how we understand what's creating that line rather than whether or not it makes sense to think about the existence of, of a line like that so I mean that would also, Right, that is also something that we could talk about probably at much greater length.
0: Yeah, much greater length. Uh, um,
1: yeah. But it's, it's, I think um, you know, even just from this early conversation, I hope it's really clear to listeners too, because um, it's actually it's really really clear to me that there's so much in the book that makes for. Really, really interesting, or potentially really, really interesting conversation in the context of a seminar, um, you know, a sort of a group discussion, as well as material that's really um, important for an individual reader. So this I, is, yeah.
0: And, and I think part of it has to do with the composition of the book. This book was written over a very long period of time, uh, starting in the early 90s. Um, and the pieces, uh, he argues that, you know, the pieces sort of each. Section of the larger book forms a kind of. They can be read on their own, and then they all sort of link together to one another. But something about the composition of a massive book like this that it, it sends off, it sends one thinking off in so many um, in so many different directions. Any sort of sprawling work like this, I think it's it kind of produces those possibilities. And I think the, the introduction actually was was as I understand it written after uh, many of the other parts were put together, and so it's also Wang Hui thinking through some of the issues that he had already been. facing for over 10 years in the process of writing as well.
1: And some of these issues are really fascinating. So just you know, just to kind of mention a couple of other things that stood out to me immediately is, um, and really made me think in different ways, he has a really interesting way of thinking about the way world history and world history approaches both emerge from a kind of 19th century discourse and also depend on and help create ways of thinking in terms of space and time. Uh, directionality in time, um, and which is, I think, really, really interesting to think with. And he also has a really interesting discussion, um, sort of midway to sort of mid late in the book, of things. Right. Uh, ways of conceptualizing things, either as um, kind of standards and norms, having a kind of moral significance and or things as facts. And he actually historicizes a transformation in notions of things uh, right. in China, which is, is, I think, really, really useful and also could potentially be a really interesting contribution to a larger discussion about the history and philosophy of things, thing theory, um, which doesn't tend to take on um, notions like this, notions from this kind of context.
0: Yeah, this was the part that I really struggled with translating. I have to admit, and reading oh, yeah. it and rereading it many, many times because it's probably the most um, abstract part of the book. Um, and, and this is, this is very much tied up with his discussion of the relationship between so-called heavenly principle or Tian Lee, um, this idea that, you know, we might in, interpret as, um, uh, natural principle, right, or heavenly principle, the relationship of things to a larger, um, natural order. And then universal principle or Gongli which really relates more to the idea of a kind of scientific order and he goes back and it's, it's this discussion of the relationship between uh, things and principle. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree with you yeah in terms, in terms of thinking about the, 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 the material history and the idea of things themselves as a way that they are conceived in relation to a larger order it is a very it's a very interesting and suggestive contribution on his part. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's actually since you brought it up, let's um go a little bit in that direction and I, i'll still mention I'll bring us back to Hitler and Mussolini at some <laughs> point. Cause- I've, I've gone there. We got to, you know, we got to get back.
0: Right. I, I may have forgotten about that part.
1: Well, actually, I'll just mention then and, then, and then let's get to the translation stuff. But he yeah. does um, one of the really interesting things here. I've already mentioned that it's you know, it's actually really useful and really enlightening that he's grounding a lot of his story in a kind of genealogy of concepts or genealogy of discussion emerging out of. Largely 19th century, but even earlier. Um, It goes back to sort of early modern and even, or uh, what we would call in European historiography, sort of early modern, like 16th century. And even uh, earlier than that, um, literature about um, time and space and history and etc. So there is a really useful... A genealogy of notions that come out of European historiography, but there's also a really interesting way of conceiving what European historiography includes, right? And at one point, right. I think he has a list of that includes Francis Bacon, Machiavelli, Hitler, and Mussolini. Uh-huh. And these are just, you
0: know. And Ludwig like, Gumplowitz, right? right? <laughs> I, I confess to listeners out there, I had not heard of Ludwig Gumplowitz <laughs> before I started uh, translating this book. That's that's uh, I fully admit it.
1: <laughs> so it's it's simultaneously, you know, really refreshing to have a treatment that moves beyond a merely, you know, East-West binary that that you know generalizes the West as it's, if it's some, um, you know, totalizing, conceptually <laughs> opaque uh, set of concepts. But also, it's it's there's some really interesting opportunities for thinking about, I'll put it that way, sort of what the notion of European historiography is as it emerges from the book and how he produces the particular genealogies of European historiography he does, and and what the potential implications are
0: M- might be, yeah, and, and I think that that's that, that's one of think, the real values of this of this particular um, piece, and and as well as just of of translating this introduction in general is is um, outside of the field of Asian studies. Okay. Um, the availability of works like this in English, I think, is 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 pretty sparse. At least for, or there's not a lot of availability of texts like this in English for people outside of Chinese studies to read. And so, to see this version um, uh, or this genealogy of so-called Western thought, um, I think is, is very useful and challenging for people who are not in this field. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's also one of the certainly one of the motivations for me in in translating the book is, is to uh, provide that kind of opportunity or offer, you know, some, in some ways that kind of challenge um, for scholars who don't work in this particular um, quadrant of area studies as it's configured in the university today.
1: Are there any other, I mean, that's actually a great point. Are there any other, um, before we kind of move to more translation craft kind of issues, um Aspects of the argument or the historical picture being uh, promoted here, um, being given here, that you think are particularly um, germinal, are particularly um, ripe for problematizing some of the ways that we think Chinese history and and produce Chinese history in the Anglophone world?
0: I think... um his, his, and you, you brought this up a little bit, his discussion in the last chapter about um, the relationship between the historical changes in the Chinese language mm-hmm. and ideas of nationalism is particularly useful. He's really keen to take on uh, Benedict Anderson and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Ernest Gellner as well in, in thinking through some of these questions about the relationship between nationalism and culture. And um, without simply, you know, and this happens so often in Chinese studies is you know it's either the thumbs up or thumbs down on theory. Is you know <laughs> it does this apply or doesn't it? Right. This right. is the kind of thing that lots of graduate students struggle with, and he does. That's not his interest. Um, he he kind of takes them apart and and shows how there are certain places in which thinking about the idea, for example, of the vernacular might be quite useful, but then also approaching the constructedness of the chinese vernacular in particular of or what we think of as as baihua wen right so so written vernacular as being a kind of um construction that m- may not actually have a tremendously Powerful relationship to spoken Chinese, but is still important in the way that it represents a an attempt on the part of Chinese intellectuals at that time to assert uh, a, a relationship between language and a modern identity, and that in fact, you know, that there may be points of comparison there. I think with. With uh, with many other areas, um, and but it also allows us to sort of tweak and talk back to, and and while still drawing from some of these very influential um, theoretical writings.
1: Absolutely, thank you, Michael. Uh, so sure. let's uh, maybe move to talking about translation. Okay. A bit. So spending significant time working on a translation like this has to be on some level a labor of love or at least a labor of major respect, right? It's, it's really a kind of um, outlay of and um, use of resources, for a kind of project that isn't always you know held up at the highest levels of respect or you know held up for absolutely respect in our discipline so absolutely talk a little, just a little bit about sort of how you situate this work for yourself in terms of the larger ways you think about the status of translation in our profession
0: Well, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, translation as as an activity is just generally not rewarded by institutions. Um, I think it's rewarded by readers and by students and by colleagues um, all the time. I mean, if you you produce something that can be used um, for, for example, in classroom use, or that has appeal outside of your field. I think that that you get all kinds of people definitely recognize the value of that, but institutionally um, it, it tends not to be rewarded. And this is, this is, um, you know, in, in many universities in North America, you know, the focus is still on the, the monograph, especially if you work in, I'm in, I'm in a literature department. Um, You're in a history department. I think both of those fields are still very focused, especially for people who are assistant professors wanting to get tenure. Uh, or associate professors wanted to, you know, get that next promotion. You, the, the monograph is the gold standard, mm-hmm. and so uh, it, it, when when placed against that uh, kind of standard, then translation work is often seen as a kind of a, a distraction, uh, or maybe not not uh, the, the 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 kind of production that uh, that universities want to see and to some extent I think it really yields some distortions in the field that that, that actually further ghettoize uh, area studies in particular um, you know an example for me is that I, I my specialty is late 19th early 20th century um, Chinese literature intellectual history cultural history and I'm Amazed still that at this time there isn't a very good reader in English of uh, political thought from the early twentieth century. Um, there's a really good work on literature. Kirk Denton edited this wonderful volume on um, modern Chinese literary thought that that uh, is is hugely useful. But uh, I noticed. When I was reading Pankaj Mishra's latest book, uh, From the Ruins of Empire, um, he has a chapter on Liang Qichao, on the important early 20th century intellectual. And I was really surprised in, in reading. His chapter, you know, his quotations from Liang Qichao are all, or most of them anyway, are from the works of Joseph Levinson. Um, and just, and Levinson's early work from, I, I think this is published in the 60s on Liang Qichao because those, those things are simply just not available. And even Chinese studies, when we compare it, for example, to, um, other fields, um, you know Charles Kurtzman, um, a sociologist at Duke, has, has produced a couple of wonderful edited volumes on Islam, um, an edited volume on modernist Islam, another one on liberal islam that that bring together all these very important political writings from nineteenth um, and twentieth century together and make them available uh, in ways that that have not happened. Um, yet for chinese studies and 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 i think also if we compare there's similar kinds of examples for japanese studies so i think that that this institutional status of translation you know ensures in some ways that um really important texts remain unavailable for people outside of the field and and that ends up sort of working against us so so i i i certainly um that's one sort of value. I certainly do see the value in doing work because that it makes our, it makes our work available to people outside of, uh, outside of Chinese studies. And I think that, you know, institutionally it's something that we always complain about, um, is the way that area studies gets placed in its own sort of corner. Um, and this is, this is one of the ways to get out of that, but there are, so there are definitely institutional roadblocks to, to making that happen. Um, Mm-hmm. That's all I'll say on that. I could probably go on for hours about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we, could probably, um, we could probably have a conversation for a couple hours really just about that. I mean, it's, I can't tell you how many conversations I've been involved in in the past few years with colleagues working in different um, areas of the fields I work in where we think, yeah, you know what? we You'll be really, really useful is putting together a reader of translations, for example, of primary source texts on the sciences, right? Science, technology, okay. medicine, and East Asia. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it would change the way we could teach, et cetera? And it becomes a labor problem because, Absolutely. you know, if, if you have people contributing um, who, are, who need, as you just mentioned, who need to get um, either tenure or interested in promotions, have a billion other things they're committed to, you know it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort that's just not institutionally rewarded so
0: and, yeah yeah i mean i'll say i actually i mean my 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 i at University of South Carolina, people are, are very supportive of mm-hmm. it. Uh, and that's because I'm actually, I'm in a large department that includes uh, people in linguistics, people in language pedagogy, people in, la- in literatures, foreign languages and literatures. And so there's already a certain kind of uh, uh, recognition that not everybody's work uh, is going to result in the same kind of product, right? So, so you know, people who work in linguistics don't necessarily publish monographs, right? So, so there's, uh, and, and so we recognize that there are different ways of, of demonstrating your contributions to um, to the field, but as you said, yeah, the labor problem is really important. The the volume I contributed to on the the birth of Chinese feminism, I think it was like five years from the time I submitted that translation until it reached mm-hmm. print, and it was because um, the editors and worked so hard on making, ensuring the quality of all of the translations and getting everybody's work together and writing that introduction. And and I think the result is fantastic. Uh, But it was also really a labor of love on their part as well. So,
1: So, Michael, a little bit earlier you talked about, or I think you briefly mentioned, that you do a lot of preparation or a lot of work before you actually sit down to get working on the translation. So, this is probably a good um, way to open up a discussion of your processes as a translator. So, can you kind of walk us through that and and, um, with as much um, maybe specific focus on the Wang Kui volume as you'd like
0: um, as a translation? Sure. Uh, I think the first thing is just to try to get all the helps that you can. I try to get it as I, you know, I'm, lots of, uh, um, help is needed in putting together a book like this. Uh, the, this particular, um, book has a tremendous number, for example, of quotations from other texts, right? So there's all these translations from, or uh, quotations from other writers. And one of the things that I did when I went through the translation was to block out everything that might already exist in translation um, in another form from somewhere. And then um, I went and gathered all of those things uh, with the help of a graduate student who was working with me, Gao Gong Song, who did a tremendous job uh, in helping me with this part of the research, but going through and finding, you know, what is the correct standard translation of this text from Marx or Hegel or um, some of these other kinds of things that were out there. Um, and then also the standard there, there were a large number of quotations from classic texts uh, from Chinese. So that involves a little bit more research, and, and Google Books is extremely helpful here going through and trying to find certain terms in particular. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm not always up on all of the terminology from... Song Dynasty land tenure rules and things like really? this. Yeah, I know, I know. It's <laughs> terrible. And so you know, you go and find that stuff, and um, always try to credit as much as I can the work of other people as well. And and through that, I usually get a glossary started as well. So so really try to find in advance like what are the difficult terms and start a glossary uh, and and. Um, Make sure that as I get going, I have this. I mean, it usually starts out as a handwritten list, but then eventually should be hopefully more than a handwritten list. It might have just been a bunch of handwritten scrawled notes, I think, actually, as I was doing it. But still, so get a glossary going. And then um, it's really important, I think, to have an electronic version of the source text. Um, so I'd ask Wang Hui to send me, you know, send me your Word files so that you can go through and search everything. And this is important once you have a draft going. Um, that if you want to ensure the consistency of terminology, you can go through and search everything in both, you know, in both the English file and in the Chinese file, and I think once you sort of have all that lined up, um, that's when I start translating.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, for this text, I, I actually I use dictation software. When I translate, I, I hold the source in my hand and dictate, and use that to produce a rough draft. Um, I felt like in, in using this text, it was it, it, doing that actually gets you a little bit closer to the language in some ways. Um, it also produces lots of funny errors, of course, if you use this kind of stuff. And 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 so then I go through and uh, reread the draft, and I do. A process that is, I call it garble hunting. I look for garbled text. I don't make any reference to the Chinese at all. And I just go through and look for weird phrases where you say, you know, that's obviously not right, or this is really awkward. Oftentimes that will reveal errors in the translation, uh, or in the, in the, in the dictation through the, you know, the, the dragon naturally speaking software. Um, so I go through and do that. And then, um, I sit down and do a close, comparison again between the source text and the English rough draft that I've produced and copy edit and try to get all of that out of the way at once, like in one pass and enter all the changes. And then usually from that, that results in me having some questions uh, where I feel like I'm not happy with the translation or there's some terminology that I need to research more or in in the case of this book there were a number i mean the, the, i think it's at the beginning of chapter two there's all of these quotations from classical chinese about the idea of empire mm-hmm. and and where these two characters di and guo appear together and for those kinds of things i send portions of the translation off to other people who um no more than I do, really, or who are who who are good outside readers, and so um, Wu Shangqing, who I think you spoke with a few weeks ago, was extremely helpful uh, in reading some of my drafts of of some of these uh, chunks of text that were from classical Chinese because I felt like I really needed to have someone um, read them and give me some feedback on them because you know, I mean you know, how it is with classical Chinese, you can read something completely wrong and it makes perfect sense in your mind. Um, and, and you, you need to have that help. And then, so once I resolve those, I usually, um, I try, I usually try to work with another editor. Uh, I have a friend of mine who I work with uh, both for my book and then for this translation as well, uh, who, who knows Chinese pretty well and, um, there's an excellent writer and have him read through that. um, as much as I can afford to ask him to do that, and Mm -hmm. and to sort of make some suggestions. this is a really hard thing for academic writers is to have other people edit their work, and I, I think uh, that it's it's something I, I actually really like that part of the process because people make it better. Um, a, a good reader can make it better, and then uh, for this book, this was submitted to a reviewer, so they they you know the translation was refereed by an anonymous reader, and who who made a number of suggestions and um, you know. Uh, Pointed out some questions that might that might need to be resolved in the process. And then I think toward the end I actually ended up running a few things by Wang Hui himself and, and also asking him for clarification on a few things. There was some terminology that really needed. Um, in a few places he needed to to uh, maybe write an extra footnote or an extra few more sentences to really explain it to to English readers.
1: Mm-hmm. So. so and how are you just because I am now curious about this aspect of process? Are you a reserve days for translation work person, or are you a work a little bit every day over time and, and mix it up with your teaching person?
0: I try. When, as I was working on this, I tried to do like a certain number of words a day. So I would usually shoot for a thousand words a day, five hundred to a thousand words a day, which which takes about bit of a rough draft, and that takes about. A thousand words should take about two hours. Yeah, um, and and sort of do it slowly. Otherwise, it's too exhausting. I think. Right. Um, but it's also good to like like academic writing. It's good to keep at it so mm-hmm. that it's fresh in your mind. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, you come back to it and it's really a slog. <laughs>
1: that's right. I'm a little. I've turned to being a little bit everyday person as well. I think it's the only way for me as well to to get done the book that I'm writing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. doing smaller <laughs> snippets. Yeah. So I think so, helps
1: a lot better. Michael, we've already talked a little bit about um, some of the elements of the prose here that were perhaps you know especially challenging as a translator. And so you've talked a little bit about the heavenly principle, universal principle, um, uh, kind of uh, problem or situation. You also talk early on in the book, I think um, perhaps in the translator's introduction about the kinds of the characteristics of Wang Hui's Chinese prose that are distinctive, right? And um, right. for, with regard to other Chinese prose and the challenges of navigating that. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, this really um, required me to make a lot of decisions behind the scenes um, and, and in, in how I rendered his writing. Um, and I, as I worked on this book, I really tried to be as unobtrusive as possible. Um, you know, the, the, there aren't that many translators' notes. Uh, it's really only in places where I felt like I absolutely had to explain it. Um, there were many other we talked about this at the very beginning, um, many other introductions of the book out there already um, that had already been, you know, very long critiques of the book that had been written of of the whole rise of modern Chinese thought that had been written by Wang Ban wrote a really good one. Viren Murthy wrote a really good one. Uh, Zhang Yongle has also written a really good one published in English. So I felt that in terms of my own introduction, I needed to be sort of as minimal as possible and kind of step back and let let the let the work speak for itself at this point, um, but the question of style was something that I really uh, had to grapple with. Uh, Wang Wei is known for writing in a really difficult style. Um, you know, there's these. It, it's it's also not my style. Uh, it's it's not the kind of prose style that I look for in in my work. Um, he has these very very long sentences, um, some of which go on you know for half a page. Um, he uses he uses. There's definitely some jargon that's in there, um, and he he often when making arguments goes for this kind of very precise style that that also can be a little bit verbose, right? So so that um, you know you end up with these very long paragraphs sentences that you use. A lot of repetition of terminology, um, and how do you how do you deal with that as a translator? Um, and this is where I found, you know. Theories of translation that are out there uh, to be very useful. I mean, uh, Lawrence Venuti has written very extensively about the the conflict between uh, so-called nativizing translation and foreignizing translation, and and by nativizing translation he means the the, the kind of expectation uh, among readers among reviewers that the translator make. The, the book, make the English in this case, especially in Anglo American context, make the English as readable as possible and make it as, um, fluid as possible, right? So fluency, readability, all of these kinds of things are very, very important in nativizing standards of translation. And, and, um, so, we come into a number of different conflicts here, right? I think when we talk about style, um, so-called new left, I mean, writers like Wang Hui is often uh, categorized as a new left writer, but although he doesn't really accept the category, they're often criticized for their writing style. It's seen as being, you know, elitist or, or incoherent. Um, and I think somewhere behind that, there's also the accusation that it's not Chinese enough uh, or that it might be a little bit uh, that it's not, you know, within the Chinese Literary style. Um, we we also have the problem of, of so called bad writing in the anglophone world, um, especially as its relation to theory and and um, particularly so called queer theory. Right was often uh, accused of engaging in a style that would be parodied very often. Um, and 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 I think also in Chinese studies we have the same issue. Right where there is a certain kind of um, Well, there have been a number of debates about the usefulness of theory in Chinese studies in North America and and a kind of um, discomfort with that that language. And and so um, my choice when translating was to try to reproduce his style as closely as I could. Um, so the long sentences and the long paragraphs are there. And in fact, I remember sort of rejecting the queries from the copy editor and from the person who I also edits my work and saying, Nope, that's how it is. You know, there's, we're not, we're not putting a paragraph break in here. We're not breaking down the sentence. Um, I think I may have used the semicolon a little bit too much in the English, but trying to like <laughs> preserve that long uh, uh, the long sentences uh, that he, that is part of his style and to be really deliberate about that. Um, and then I think also there are some places where there's some sort of crescendos in his argument. I really try to make sure that they come out um, so that we, we don't as a translator, as readers run away from some of the difficulties of the text. Mm-hmm. So.
1: Fantastic. well Michael, thank you so much for spending <laughs> so much time talking about this with me. It's fascinating both um, from the perspective of uh, at least for me a conversation about Chinese history and the historiography of China and also a conversation about translation and its challenges and its processes and its practices. So I'm really grateful to you for speaking.
0: Well thanks for the opportunity I thought it was it's a, I thought it was a great idea to talk about it, especially from that perspective.
1: So we've we, there's a lot we didn't talk about, right? There's a lot more um, that we could have talked about, about the, the process, the translation, the book. Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Hard to think of it right off the top of my okay. head, other than just sort of uh, – Certainly, want to. I, I encourage people who are in the field, um, well, not necessarily even in my field, to sort of try to try to think about um, projects that might be useful for them as translation as a way of moving your own work forward. Maybe not in book length, but uh, in, in in maybe in shorter projects to to leave that door open as a way of um, supplementing your own work and, and moving your own work forward and and um, getting you to approach problems from a new direction. Hmm.
1: And speaking of your own work, uh, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and um, inspired by?
0: Well, a couple of years ago, I totally lost it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think in the eyes of my uh, some people I know and, and started learning Arabic, uh, started taking some Arabic courses here at the University of South Carolina. And I am really interested in, in the possibilities for a kind of comparative project of uh, mid to late 19th century uh, Chinese literature and then, and then uh, Arabic language literature as well. And and looking for certain possible points of connection and and convergence, particularly between the period of the so-called kind of enlightenment um, in China, this the kind of meng si or or enlightenment thought, and then the uh period in the in the mid nineteenth century. I, I think it's ripe for exploration, and I think that it may provide some insights to some of the contemporary issues that we see today about China's relations with, um, with North Africa and with the Middle East. So probably bitten off way more than I can ever chew with that project. But that's what I'm uh, just kind of starting at right now.
1: Sounds absolutely fabulous. And I'm so glad you're still working on that. So best of luck with that project. Um, thank you. I'll let you um, get off to that. But thank you so much, Michael, for making the time. It's really been a pleasure. And congratulations on a book that I hope is in print for a very long time and is very Thanks. widely assigned and read. So thank you. Thanks so much. You have been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.